In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Oh, God willing, today we're going to continue studying in the book of Exodus, um, starting from chapter 24. Um, last time, we continued speaking about some of the various laws uh, that, uh, that God was giving um, to Moses and to the people. Um, and um, today, God willing, we're going to speak more about kind of the encounter that Moses has with God on the mountain. Um, and again, God calling Moses up to receive the actual physical tablets uh, of the Ten Commandments, um, as well as him staying on the mountain for, for 40 days. Now he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. Okay, So we know Aaron, right? Aaron is Moses' brother. Who are Nadab and Abihu? Who are they? We know. They are the sons of Aaron. They are the sons of Aaron. Okay. And so here we see that God, first of all, he is calling a certain group of people. And those people were allowed to come up a certain way. And then he calls up Moses specifically. And Moses is the one who can come up all the way and says, what, come near the Lord. Why is it that God is calling each one to something different? I mean, you have all the people at the bottom of the mountain. Then you have a group of people that were called up like part way. And then you have, and they were told what? Worship from afar. Then you have one person who is Moses, who was called by God to come all the way up, to come near to the Lord. What, why is that? Yes. Perhaps different people are at different levels of closeness with God and their ability to receive and be in his presence. Okay, so maybe different people have different uh, levels of closeness to God. Okay, different people have, different, have, have, have something different. And this closeness maybe is even something that we can, can see as a gift that is given by God, right? Who is the one who called Moses to be the, the leader of the people? It was God. You know, who is the one who is going to call Aaron to be the high priest, right? It is God. And the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, are also going to be priests. So, so God is choosing certain people for certain roles, okay? And, and this is something important for us to understand, um, especially when we speak about, like, the priesthood in general. Like, the, the spiritual leadership in the church, this is the role of the priesthood. And this isn't something that was invented by man. Right? This is something that came from God. This is something that God is the one who instituted the priesthood, whether it be the priesthood of the Old Testament or the priesthood of the New Testament. Um, so, so we have many examples actually in the scripture and where people try to take on the role of the priesthood and we see what is it that God does to them. You guys know of any examples? Yes, okay, so that's called the rebellion of Korah, okay? The rebellion of Korah, there was a group of people who felt, why is it that Moses 
should have this special status in front of God, we should all um, we should all be able to do this. Okay, and so God did what? He called all of the people, right? And he said essentially that he was going to consume the ones who were unworthy of being priests. And he opened up the ground, and the ground swallowed them up, because they were trying to take something that wasn't theirs. Good. That's a good example. Um, there's another example of a king. His name was King Uzziah, and he was actually um, a very good king. I mean, in the sense that he 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 he, he did a lot of things for the, for Israel. He built a lot of things. Um, he was very active. But then he reached the point where he felt like the thing that was kind of off limits for him was the priesthood, and so he tried again to perform the act of the priest, and um, he became a leper. Uh, and there's other examples as well, like King Saul, for instance. He tried to offer the sacrifice um, before waiting for Samuel the prophet to come, and God again rejected him as being king because he did this. So it's very clear in the scripture that God has certain roles for certain people. Right? He calls us to different things. And it's also clear that just because a person is a priest doesn't mean that they are somehow better or holier than others. Actually, later on, Nadab and Abihu are going to be rejected by God because they offer profane fire um, to God. So the idea of these rankings, if you want to call them rankings, it's not about who is better and who is worse, right? Like in the modern day mind, we have the, the sense that unless everyone has identical function, an identical role, an identical purpose, then that means somehow we are saying that one group has more value or less value than another group, right? And that's not the case. Who is the greatest one that you can think of that is in heaven? Apart from like a human being. St. Mary. St. Mary. She is the queen. She is the one who is sitting like to the right hand of, of, of God, right? So how is it that we would say that, for instance, like someone who is chosen for priesthood, for instance, if priesthood was was higher, meaning that only those people who are chosen for priesthood are better or higher than others, then you would think that maybe the highest person would be priest. Actually, it was a, it's a woman even. It's not even a man. She is the highest one, right? She is the one that we ask the most for her intercessions, right? And she is a woman. So the, the church doesn't see the ranking as being indicative of value. The position, the title, the role is not about value. St. Mary, again, based on her experience with the Lord, who is the one who had the most experience with Christ all throughout his life, that spent actually more time with Christ than the apostles themselves? It was St. Mary. And yet the Lord chose the apostles, after only spending three years with him, to be the ones to go and to preach to the world, the ones to whom would be given the gift of the priesthood, not St. Mary, right? But does that mean that that's because St. Mary is less than them? No, if anything, St. Mary is higher than them, right? But, but she wasn't given the same gift. She wasn't given the same role, okay? And so here we see the same thing. This r idea here does not mean that the people are of less value than Aaron and his sons. And it doesn't mean that they are of less value than Moses himself. But God chooses different people for different roles. And St. Paul makes this very clear when he was speaking to the Corinthians about the gift, different gifts of the Spirit, right? He says there are all kinds of different gifts in the Spirit. Some people have the gift of teaching. Some people have the gift of prophecy. Some people have the gift of administration. Some people have the gift of encouragement, right? All of these different roles are necessary just as all the parts of the body are necessary for the body to function. And if everyone 
was, and, and given the analogy of the Abadi, it's like if everyone was an eye, you know, where would be the hearing? And if everyone was an ear, where would be the seeing? So God arranges, right, for all of the gifts that are given to all of us as members of the church, as the body of Christ, to be perfect and balanced so that the body of Christ can thrive and flourish. But that only will work if everyone is content and satisfied with the role that they have been given, right, and are working diligently with it. But when you have people that are trying to gain unlawfully another, another rank or to feel envious of another group of people that have a different position, this is when the body of Christ breaks down. This is when you can't have synergy and harmony and, and, and teamwork and working together, everyone offering, like, what is it their gift and what is it their talent? So here we see very clearly, all throughout Scripture, actually, that God chooses different people um, for different things. And then you can ask the question, well, why does he choose a specific person versus another? This is up to his wisdom. Like, he sees the heart. He knows what is in each one, and he created each of us. And it's not wrong to desire more gifts, actually, uh, even St. Paul, when he was speaking to the Corinthians, he says, but desire the better gifts. But just because we desire the better gifts, just because we desire more authority or we desire more, um, not authority, responsibility, um, doesn't mean that we should feel discontent with what it is that we have. Okay, so, so, so here this kind of God gives this model to us and shows us how he is calling people to, uh, to draw close to him. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has said we will do. Okay, so here, as we as this happened also before, um, the people, when they hear, okay, this is what you are called to do, the people assent. The people say, yes, we are going to do what the Lord asks us to do. All the words which the Lord said. But these are the same people that very shortly after this are not going to do what the Lord asked them to do. And when we spoke about this before, we spoke about the idea of the self-understanding, right? Self-understanding. When, when, we, when we, like, are given a commandment, right, do we think to ourselves, how hard or easy is this for me to really do? Do I really know my weaknesses? Like, do I really know? Like, some people really know their weaknesses very well. And so when you tell them something, they can think to themselves, you know what, I don't know, I don't think I'm going to be able to do that, right? Or even when it comes to timing, you know, some people, like, they, they, they have a very good sense of their schedule. They, you tell them, can you be at this such and such place at this time? And they look at their schedule and they're like, no, I really don't think I'm going to be able to do it because I have other things right before, right? But there are some people that you feel like they're, like, oblivious to this. You, you ask them anything, like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna, I'll do it, right, you know, I'll, of course, you know, I'll do it. Can you be there this? Oh, yeah, I can be there this time. And they come three hours late, right? Or you ask them to do something, and they've got, like, ten other things that they're trying to do at the same time, and so it's impossible for them to do, right? Maybe they have a desire to please, a desire to serve, a desire to do something good, but at the same time, maybe what they lack is a self-understanding. They don't understand their own limitations, and they don't understand even their own their own time, their own schedule, what it is that they are already committed to doing. So we see this constantly with the Israelites because the Israelites keep committing to obey God, but they don't really follow through with that. Maybe in the book of Judges we see that very often because in the book of Judges there's like the cycle of sin and tribulation 
and repentance and salvation, and then again happens again, and the people keep falling and repenting, falling and repenting, right? But each time, this new generation of people um, doesn't really like understand what are the temptations, doesn't really understand what are the, the pitfalls, what are the ways that I could fall, well, how is it that I should be careful? We do this sometimes as well when we place ourselves in situations where we're very liable to sin. Like we're very liable to fall. We allow ourselves to, su- to do things, to hear things, to see things, to be with people that is just like a disaster waiting to happen. And yet in our own minds, we think I'm strong to resist. You know, I, I, I'm not going to do the wrong thing. I'm going to make good choices, even though I'm surrounded by people that make horrible choices. But I will make good choices. You know, um, I will surround myself in an environment where everything around me can bring me into temptation and sin, but I will choose not to sin. Right. It's a kind of lack of self-understanding a lack of understanding of who am I really? Do I really know my weakness or do I think myself much more strong than I should? Here also the people, almost in a, in a trivial way, they hear Moses give the commands and say, oh yeah, all the words of the Lord we will do. But if you were to look inside them, you would find that in very short amount of time, they were going to completely disobey God and worship an idol, right? So, so d- they didn't really understand themselves. And maybe when they respond, they don't really take to heart, okay, what is required of me? And the Lord spoke about this when he spoke about discipleship, you know. There were people who maybe were very casual when the Lord says to them, come and be a disciple, come and follow me. And they're like, okay, you know, be a disciple. But then he said, what, well, count the cost, right? Count the cost. Are you, are you ready, right? And he gave the example of like a, 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 a general going to war, right? It says when, when you're going to go to war, you make sure that your army is of sufficient number to defeat the army of the enemy. And if it's not, you say, what? We're going to make peace. We're not going to fight because I won't be able to win, right? You think through it, right? So, so it's like, you know, we are going to war against the devil, if you want to put it that way, okay? Am I prepared to do war? Like, am I prepared to fight? Um, do I have the, the spiritual... Um, uh, like like empowerment in me that I seek from God and receive from God in order for me to actually fight, in order for me to truly be a disciple of Christ? Do I have the courage to confess when I fall? Um, it, I should know myself, right? So of course, when we hear the command of God, we should assent. And we said, yes, I want to do this. But at the same time, I have to ask myself, what do I need to do in order to do this? How can I actually follow through with this command? What is it that I need to give up? Do I want to be a disciple of Christ? What do I have to sacrifice to be his disciple? Can I continue to live my life the way I have been and at the same time be a disciple? Or is there something that I have to change in order for me to be a disciple? And if I don't do that kind of introspection, then I will start on this path of discipleship and I will very quickly fall and I will become discouraged and I won't even maybe understand why it happened, right? But for me to truly embark on this, I have, to st- I have to take stock of myself and I have to say, what is it that I am lacking? What is it that I need to fix? What is it that I need to work on? How, how should I change? So the people here are responding in agreement to what Moses is telling them, all these commands. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt sacrifices and sacrificed peace offerings uh, of oxen to the Lord. So all of the nation came to worship. 
all of the nation. God called certain people to up the mountain. But when it came time for the worship, it wasn't only certain people that worshipped. Everybody came to worship. He sent the young men of all of the tribes of the children of Israel who come and to offer these burnt offerings. And these 12 pillars, again, representing the 12 tribes, meaning the, the it's like the, the entire nation as a whole is worshipping God. Okay, So worshipping is not just for a small group of people. right? The church should not be that there is a certain group of people. These are the group of people that attend Vespers. These say six, seven, eight people. Those are the ones that do that. And the the people who come early in the morning to the church, yeah, there's these other, like maybe the same seven, eight people plus another ten more people. Those are the ones who come early to church. But then the majority of people, they all come like after the sermon. Like, that should not be, that is not the church as a whole worshiping, right? That is certain people who are zealous and care. They're the ones who are attentive. They're the ones who are coming to worship, right? But what about everyone else, right? Here, it was clear that this this worship was for everyone. Also, the service of the church is for everyone. You know, like, it should not be that I come to church and all that happens is I am served. You know, I come I come to church, there's, there's a priest, obviously, he's praying the liturgy for me. There's deacons that are chanting the hymns for me. Um, there are the Sunday school servants who are teaching me and teaching my kids. There are the people who are preparing the food for me. Um, there is, you know, all everything is set up for me. And I'm like the audience. And I come and I, I receive all these things from all these people who work hard and prepare and do all of this work so that I can benefit. Of course, that's what the service of the church is. The service of the church is to bring that benefit to everyone. But I should ask myself, am I also participating in this service? Is there something that I'm coming to church to offer or is I'm only coming to receive? Am I coming just because I want to be served or am I coming also to serve? And the Lord Christ himself said this. He says that he came not so that he could be served, but so that he could serve. Right? He is the one who washed the feet. He didn't want people to wash his feet. The Lord himself came so that he could wash our feet. And this is the spirit of service. So when we come to the church, we need to feel like we are committed. We are engaged. This is, this is a part of my life, and this is what I should be doing, and how I should be serving the Lord here in this place. This is his house, right? What is it that I can do that I can benefit other people instead of me thinking, what is it that other people can do to benefit me? And Moses took half the blood, so this is the blood that came from all of the sacrifices that were being offered. Moses took half the blood and put it in basins. And half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. Again, they repeated that. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Okay? So the sprinkling of the blood represents purification and sanctification. Right? Consecration to God. So the sprinkling of the blood, okay, was, um, was, was a sign of the fulfillment and the acceptance of this covenant that God made. That God made with the people. Okay, um, in Hebrews 10, uh, St. Paul, he says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, 
he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh and having a high priest over the house of God. Blood is what was shed by the Lord in order to fulfill the covenant that God made with us. The covenant was what? The covenant is that he would be our God and we would be his people. This is the covenant that God made through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all throughout history, is that, is that Israel would be a, a mighty nation and that God would be their God. Okay, and, and, and spiritually, in the New Testament, that we and the church, as the believers, are the people of God, that he is our God, that he is our redeemer, that he is the one who saves, and we are responding to his love with obedience and submission. Okay, accepting from him what he offers to us. So this blood was a sign of the covenant, right? That he sprinkles it on the altar and he sprinkles it on the people. That the people are purified, they are sanctified, they are holy, okay? And ultimately this blood is a symbol of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that was shed for us to bring us the ultimate purification, right? To forgive our sins, the redemption, forgiveness of sins. Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. Okay, so they're seeing this vision of God. Okay, and they see under him, there's sapphire stone on the ground. Okay, this sapphire actually represents heaven that this place is like a heavenly place. Um, this was not just a mountain, like an earthly mountain that they were on, but it was like a sublime place, like a heaven, heavenly place where they meet with God. And sapphire is actually one of the stones of the foundation of the heavenly Jerusalem that we see in the Revelation, right? So in the book of Revelation, St. John sees this image of the heavenly Jerusalem, which is like this heavenly city. And the foundation of the city is made up of all of these different types of stone. And sapphire is one of those stones. It says in Revelation 21, 19, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, right? And he goes on, there's 12. So here it says this sapphire is one of the stones that was used as the foundation of the heavenly Jerusalem. And so here it is saying like this place, that this meeting place where they are meeting with God is not just an earthly mountain, but it is like a heavenly place, a place where God is dwelling. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand, so they saw God and they ate and drank. When it says he did not lay his hand, it means that he, God allowed the people to be in his presence. Like God allowed the people to be in his presence. Not only that, they did a very peculiar thing, which is, they saw God and then ate and drank. Like, wasn't something that you would immediately think, like, go together? You know? The idea that you see God and then you sit and you eat. Okay? But this is like a um, kind of, we see the two aspects of our life as human beings. We see the spiritual and we see the physical together. Right? It's like a unity of heaven and earth. That yes, this place is a holy place. And yes, there is sapphire. And yes, there is the presence of God. But also as human beings, they are flesh, right? And it's like saying, 
we cannot ignore our human needs as we are pursuing God. Like we are made in the image of God and we are in communion with God, but we are still flesh. So even as we are, you know, as, uh, what is it that God is expecting of us? He doesn't forget that we are flesh. You know, in the I believe it's in the Psalms where it says he remembers that we are dust. Right? So if, if we are dust, made of dust, made in his image, yes, but still made of flesh. And so here the, 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 the children of Israel are in the presence of God while they are kind of demonstrating their humanity, this eating and drinking. Then the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and be there, and I will give you the tablets of stone and the law and commandments which I have written that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. So this is where actually Moses is going to receive the actual tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandment tablets, the two tablets, right? Whereas before when we heard them in chapter 20, it was like God is speaking them orally to Moses, but now he is going to receive them um, written in tablets, okay? And Joshua, who was the assistant of Moses, um, he actually, we know that later on after Moses dies, Joshua becomes the one who kind of takes his place and leads the people whom God communicates with after um, the death of Moses. So it's very interesting that Joshua here is the one who went up with Moses, right? Who was later chosen to be the next leader of the people. Joshua lived a, dis a life of discipleship to Moses. And we see this from even the very first time here where he is mentioned. He is following Moses up the mountain. Later on, he becomes one of the 12 spies that is sent into the promised land, and he comes back with a good report, faithfully believing that the Lord can give them the land, even though other people did not. Joshua made many good decisions, and you see this discipleship working in him from even now up until much later um, when he is much older, when he actually takes over like the, the, the leadership of Israel from Moses after he dies. This, as we also have mentioned before when we were talking about like the honoring the parents, is, is a very important principle, right? We cannot take the charge and the authority and, and lead and do without having first trained, right? So in order for us to train, and this is the church emphasizes a lot the idea of discipleship, is that we have to submit. I have to submit my will to someone. I have to submit my will to someone who I believe is wiser than me, who can teach me, who who knows the way, someone who operates by the right principles and the right values, and I submit my will to this person. How many times have you been absolutely wrong about something and didn't know it? Actually, every time. Because if, 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 if you knew it, then you would have changed your mind. Like we are always, every time we're wrong, okay, every time we're wrong, we don't realize it, right? Maybe somebody else does, right? Maybe somebody else sees. Maybe we ourselves, when we look at the decisions that we made five years ago, we see that they were wrong, okay? But we didn't see it then. So the idea of submission and discipleship that is so important in the church, like having a spiritual father, right? Someone that we reveal our thoughts to someone we confess our sins to, someone who we just discuss what our ideas are, what our plans are, what our thoughts are, what our sins are, is someone who objectively looks at us and says, this is right, this is good, you should do this. No, this is wrong. And when it is wrong, we are called to submit to this. And this is the way 
And one of the, the main ways, actually, that the Holy Spirit works to sanctify us is because we allow ourselves to be sanctified. We submit to the wisdom of the Holy Spirit working through another person, right? This is one of the ways that God like helps us and transforms us is through other people. But I will miss this if I don't submit my will to that person, right? And this is why in the church we see many, many examples. Like some of the greatest fathers, they were discipled under others who are also great, right? And because they were their disciples, they learned from them. They absorbed from them, and they, they became great themselves um, later, just like we see here. Yeah. just going to comment. Um, I read... I can't think of other examples right now, but, you know, uh, like secular examples of, of this discipleship, you know, you have, you have movies, uh, say Star Wars, this is the only thing one I can think of right now, um, Yoda and Luke Skywalker, I think, right? I mean, uh, or, yeah. uh, or I'm, sure, I'm sure there are other examples, but people who are looking to a master to learn from them? Yes. Right, that's the premise? Yeah, yeah, that's the premise. So in Star Wars and in the church, in both places. <laughs> um, but definitely, I mean, discipleship is important in every, pl in every way, even in the secular life, even in the academic life, right? The people who really like advance the most are the, willings that are the people that are willing to be molded by another person. But those who believe that they can just go and do it on their own, um, it takes them much longer to get there and maybe they never get there and they, they miss out on the wisdom that the people that before like that came before like learned themselves so to be open minded and to be willing to submit to discipleship is very important for us as christians because we learn not just the words that are written but we learn there and understand them and that there's a deep wisdom behind them and how to apply them in a wise and discerning way um in our own life and he said to the elders wait here for us until we come back to you Indeed, Aaron and her are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. Okay, so Moses and Joshua are going up, and he's giving them these words. Wait here until we come back. And who is remaining with you? Aaron and her. And so if anyone has a problem, talk to them. Okay? Um, Aaron and her, later on, they play a very important role. Do you, do you know what it is? Not already. Hmm? Did they not already? Uh, were they raising not Moses' yet. hands? Yeah, no, it hasn't happened yet. Right? Or has it happened? It has happened. Oh, it has happened. Yeah, sorry, sorry. It has happened. These are the ones who did what? They raised the hands of Moses whenever the the Jews were fighting the Amalekites. Yeah, so sorry. This is not the first time we hear Joshua. Joshua was back then too. Um, so, so if you remember, Joshua was leading the people to fight in the army against the Amalekites. And Moses was up on the mountain praying, and Aaron and her were the ones that were lifting up his arms in prayer. And, and as Moses prayed, the Israelites were winning. But as Moses stopped praying and his hands would drop down, the, 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 the Amalekites would conquer. So Aaron and her, because Moses was tired of like praying and lifting his arms all day, they came and they kept his arms lifted up the entire day. So this is, um, again, here. Like Moses is deferring to them and saying, anyone who has any difficulty, any problem, any concern, you go to Aaron and her. So Moses understood that he might be up on the mountain for some time, and he wanted the people to feel like they were taken care of, like there was 
they, they, they should trust and wait and be patient so that when he returns, everything will be fine. Okay. Then Moses went up into the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Um, St. Augustine, when he is thinking about this number 40 um, that he spent on the mountain, he is considering that this number 40 is like representing an entire lifetime. Um, as though it's saying that we should spend our entire lifetime on earth in the presence of God, in the midst of the glory of God, like living with God. So the believer is called to spend their whole life fulfilling the commandments of God. Um, and also, um, as Moses fasted during this time, because he fasted for these 40 days and 40 nights, um, we are also called to like lift up our hearts in fasting. Tertullian, he says, for, for 40 days, Moses and Elias fasted, which is Elijah, and lifted up and lived upon God alone. Like the only support for Moses uh, during this time when he was on the mountain was God alone. There was no other food. There was no other sustenance for Moses other than God himself, and God sustained him. So again, as St. As Augustine is saying, we are sustained by God in our life. We are not sustained only by like the physical, like food, water, shelter, these things. But, but even if we have these things, but we do not have the presence of God, then even though we might be physically alive, but we are spiritually dead. And we have no joy or purpose or reason for living um, other than just to live one more day without any real sense of, um, of purpose, right? So, so here we see um, the sustenance that God offered to Moses. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel. So this is during the 40 days. Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart. You shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins and acacia wood, oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So God is now planning for the building of the, sa of the tabernacle. The tabernacle um, is this tent, okay, here's a picture of it, is this tent um, that the people would erect in the middle of their encampment, okay? God had a very specific way that the Israelites were to encamp. They would, they would sit, um, they, would, they would camp in by tribe, and in a way actually that formed that looked like a cross. And in the center of that cross was the tabernacle, okay? And this is kind of a picture of the tabernacle based on the measurements that the Lord is about to give to Moses. And whenever the people would move from one location in the wilderness to another, they would pack up everything in the tabernacle. And there would be the Levites, the tribe of Levi, were the ones that were appointed to carry all of these things to the new location where they would go. And then they would set it up again in that place. And this is the place that they would offer sacrifice to God. 
Okay, um, so here the Lord is saying all of the items that we need in order to build this tabernacle, we should receive it from the people. Anyone who is willing to offer the gold, the silver, um, the bronze, the blue, purple, linens, and all the different things that are going to be used for the tabernacle, you should receive it from um, the people. And God is seeking this material from them, okay, because this is their place where they are to worship. Like God is even allowing them to participate in the building of the tabernacle from what is their own. Even just like nowadays when there's a congregation and they want to have a church, where does the resources for that church come from? It comes from the congregation themselves, right? God could have said, okay, bring down from heaven. Here are all of the materials that we need to make the tabernacle, okay? And he just sets it up. There it is. But no, actually, he said, no, you take, like, go and, and, and bring the offering of all of the people so that they would come and bring this to the house of God. And a lot of the materials that they had were things that they brought with them from Egypt. Because if you remember, the night before they left Egypt, God told them to go into all of their neighbors' houses and receive from them all of this jewelry and other things that they would then take with them. Okay, and, and that, that's what happened. So it's like they brought with them all of this. The other thing about the tabernacle is the tabernacle is like a shadow of the church, meaning that the church is built in the similar way that the tabernacle is built. And the church is a shadow of heaven itself. And, and St. Paul speaks about that in Hebrews chapter 8. He says, who serve the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things. He's speaking about like the priests serve the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things, which is the church. The church is like the shadow of the heavenly. It is like the symbol of the heavenly, just as the tabernacle is the symbol of the church. And this is what St. Methodius said. He said, now the Jews prophesied our state, but we foretell the heavenly since the tabernacle was a symbol of the church and the church of heaven. So he's going to, God is going to describe now all of the details of how to make the tabernacle. And, and as I mentioned before, we see in this the detail um, that God gives like, like, like an engineering document. Like that's the level of detail that God gives of all of these things to the point where we can reconstruct an image. Obviously, the, 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 the Hebrew scriptures didn't have a drawing. Right, but we can reconstruct an image of what it actually looked like because the measurements were so accurate. Okay, um, the details matter to God, and this is why He made everything with the certain measurements that it did. So I'm going to speak just briefly about some of the different materials, um, and the each one of these materials, like according to um, origin, primarily He has like some contemplations about what the materials represent. Okay, I, I, I won't speak about every one, but just some of them. So first one he said was gold, okay? Um, Origen, he speaks about that the gold is the faith that turns the heart into heaven. And the Methodius, he believes that the gold refers to the life of virginity. Like it is something pure and valuable, right? Gold is the faith that turns heart to heaven. Um, the silver, the silver is the word of preaching as the word of God is like silver that is seven times purified, Bronze refers to patience or strength. When it says the Lord Christ's hands appeared as rods of gold in the songs of Solomon chapter 5, 
because his works are heavenly, while his feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. So this bronze like refers, refers to the patience and strength um, that we receive from God. Wood refers to knowledge or chastity that never gets old or corrupted. The fine linen thread refers to the body, which is under strict control. According to the words of the apostle, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. The fights we fought through the control through to control the body and to bring it into subjection in Christ Jesus is an offering to the house of the Lord. The scarlet color. The scarlet represents red, which is the, the color of blood. So this scarlet um, color is represents like the scarlet cord that was hung in the window of Rahab. Well, this, this doesn't happen yet. So later on when they enter into the city of Jericho, there will be a woman uh, named Rahab who helped them um, and they tell her that when we come and conquer the city, put a red cord, a scarlet cord in your window. And when we see it, we will spare you and your family and we won't attack you. Right. So this color red represents this scarlet cord, which represents the salvation by the, br the blood of Christ. And then purple, always the color purple represents like a, a, a royal, a royal color, like a like a um, like the color of kings. OK, so it's like represents a royal garment. Um that's why, like, for the Lord Christ, when they were mocking him and saying that he is the king of the Jews, they put on him a purple robe, right? So, again, this purple represents, like, the royalty, represents, like, that God is the king. So, just very briefly, some, some symbols, and, and this, is, this is a big topic. You can go much deeper in, like, what all these things mean and different sayings of the church fathers about them. But needless to say, all of the materials that was used have some kind of meaning. According to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. So to give you an idea of the, the tabernacle, this is the, the main parts of the tabernacle. Okay, so um, okay, so this part here of the tabernacle, so this is this tabernacle it faces west okay so so this direction to the right is the west um, the main entrance door um, to the holy is here so this part here of the the this is the this is the part that's a tent remember there's a there's a large like fence all the way around this is the tent that's on the inside so this first part here is called the holy and this part in here is called the holy of holies okay and inside the Holy of Holies, there's the Ark of the Covenant, which he's going to describe all of these things. Um, but just so you're aware that the Ark of the Covenant is here. Um, and out here, there is the lampstand, the golden lampstand, the altar of incense, the table of showbread. Those are the three things here in the Holy. And then outside, in what's called the outer court, okay, um, there is an altar and there is a, uh, uh, a basin for washing. Okay, um, So there's the outer court, the Holy and the most holy or the holy of holies, okay? Um, if you want to see from the inside, kind of a side view, so over here, there is, this is the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant is there. This is the priest. There is a veil here that is separating the holy of holies from the holy, and then there's the altar of incense, the golden lampstand, and the table of showbread, okay? So he's going to speak now about the Ark of the Covenant. He's going to speak about the golden lampstand, and he's going to speak about the table of showbread. Okay, this is a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. 
Okay, so you can see it's a it's a box made of wood that is overlaid in gold, and then on top of it, this is two cherubim with their wings touching each other on each side. This top part of the Ark of the Covenant is called the Mercy Seat. The Ark of the Covenant had these rings with these wooden poles that would be put into them so you could carry it. So you'd have like people carrying it from the front and the back on their shoulders, and that's how you would carry the Ark of the Covenant so that no one would actually touch the Ark of the Covenant itself. Okay, but you would carry it with these poles. So he says what? And they will make an ark of acacia wood, which is a box. Two uh, and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half shall be its width. A cubit is about a foot and a half, so you can kind of get a sense of the scale. And you shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out, you shall overlay it and shall make on it a molding of gold all around. Okay? Um, so again, this was to be kept in the innermost part in the Holy of Holies. Okay? And this ark represents the mystery of God's presence. Because the mercy seat is the place where God would appear. So this ark represents the presence of God. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side and two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark and the ark may that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. Okay, so they would carry it um, by this. And, um, and as I mentioned before, um, oftentimes... The Israelites, in much later, once they reach uh, the promised land and once they set up their kingdom and everything and they're more established, um, instead of moving the Ark of the Covenant around by the poles, they would move it by cart, uh, which was not right. It's not what God intended. And there was a time when the Ark fell and the person who tried to touch it to keep it from falling actually died because they were they touched the Ark of the Covenant. So they, they, the God asked them to carry the Ark in a certain way. And you shall put into the Ark of the Testimony, and you shall put into the Ark the testimony which I will give you. The testimony is the Ten Commandments. So when they received the tablets of the Ten Commandments, this would go inside of the Ark of the Covenant. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. So those are the two cherub cherubim on the top of the ark. Make one cherub at one end, and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it, of one piece, with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. So they're facing inward, looking at each other, the two cherubs. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. So again, this is where God would appear in the tabernacle um, to the high priest. Okay. Also, another interesting point is later on after um, 
Israel enters into the promised land, um, after some time, during the time of King Solomon, God commands the people to build a temple. The temple, to a large extent, has the same kind of uh, general uh, parameters as the tabernacle, but it's just on a larger scale. Um, there are things that are like there's more things, uh, like like f um, uh, because because it had to it had to support offering sacrifices in a larger scale and with more people. But the same basic structure, like having the outer court and the holy and the holy of holies and the items that are inside, is the same. The next uh, thing that he explained is what's called the table of showbread. And here you see this is a table, and it had 12 loaves of bread, six and six, uh, stacked up in this way. It says, you shall also make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold all around. You shall make for it a frame of a handbreadth all around, and you shall make a gold molding for the frame all around. And you shall make for it four rings of gold, and put the rings on the four corners that are at its four legs. The rings shall be close to the frame as holders for the poles to bear the table. So again, it also had these poles. And you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, that the table may be carried with them. You shall make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers, and its bowls for pouring. You shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. So this table was kept in the holy. Remember, the holy is that first part of the, the, the tent, right? So there's the holy and the holy of holies. The, for the first part, this is where the table of showbread was kept. Literally, the word for this table of showbread means the bread of the face and is also called the bread of presence. Okay, so again, this also represents the presence of God to personally fulfill the needs of the people because bread represents sustenance, right? It, it represents that it is God is feeding the people, right? So having these pieces of bread there would represent that God is sustaining and giving sustenance to the people, okay? How many pieces of bread? Twelve. Twelve, and why twelve? Twelve tribes. Twelve tribes. So each bread for one tribe, symbolically, right? This is symbolic. So every Sabbath, okay, um, there would be made the 12 pieces of bread and put there on the table, okay? Also, the number 12 symbolically is referring to the number of months in the year. So it could mean also that God is like sustaining the people all year long. So all of the people, all the time, okay? This bread was to be eaten only by the consecrated priests on the Sabbath and the tabernacle, right? So it represents a spiritual fulfillment, right? Because on the, on the day of the Sabbath, there was the day of the Sabbath is the day of the Lord. So the idea that the priests are eating this bread on the day of the Sabbath represents that this is a spiritual work, right? Like God is fulfilling the people spiritually, okay? Okay. Um, The last thing that it's mentioned is the golden lampstand. So you can see here, this was a large lampstand, okay, that had seven candles. You shall also make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be of hammered work, its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs, 
and the flowers shall be of one piece. So these are all like, like, like uh, the, the, the hammered metal, like the gold to make it look like there's flowers and all these other ornaments on, on it. And six branches shall come out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. So if you see here how, like there's three coming out of the left, three coming out of the right, and there's one that's straight up and down in the middle. So this is the total of the seven lamps. Three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on the one branch with an ornamental knob and a flower, and three bowls made like an almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornamental knob and a flower. And so for the six branches that come out of the lampstand, on the lampstand itself, four bowls shall be made like almond blossoms, each with its ornamental knob and flower. So again, this is the decoration that you see these, um, like you see these 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 things here, right? These are like ornamental parts on the on the on the lampstand. That's what that's referring to. And there shall be a knob under the first two branches of the same, and a knob under the second two branches of the same, and a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches that extend from the lampstand. Their knobs and their branches shall be one piece, and all of it shall be one hammered piece of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and they shall arrange its lamps so that they give light in front of it, and its wick trimmers and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made of a talent of pure gold and with all these utensils and see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. A talent is like a unit of weight. So he's saying the amount of gold that needs to be used um, in making it. So this also was kept in the holy um, and it represents the light of God dwelling with Israel because it is a lampstand. So this is like the light that shines upon Israel, also symbolic of Christ, who is the light of the world. The seven lamps refers to the works of the Holy Spirit, um, which shines on the church, which also represents the seven sacraments. So, so again, this is the, the light that the Lord is reminding them always that the Lord is present with them. So all these things that we're seeing has to do with constant reminders of the presence of God. Right. We said the showbread is the presence of God in the fulfillment of the needs of the people. Right. This is God is the light of the world and he is lighting kind of in the presence of the, the Israelites and also the Ark of the Covenant. The Lord would appear there in the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant to the people. So this is a good stopping point for today. Um, God willing, next time we'll continue with the other things that are found um, in the tabernacle. You have any questions or comments? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day, and we ask you, O God, that you help us to understand all the symbols that are found in the tabernacle and in other symbols in the Old Testament and how they point to you and remind us of your presence in the church, of our salvation, and your presence in us, O Lord, each day. We thank you, O God, for your love and kindness and mercy upon us. We ask that you strengthen us at all times and keep us resilient from all of the temptations in the world. Grant us your peace and unity of heart in all things that we do. 
Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, and the communion of the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. And also with your spirit.